Have you ever told yourself a story that you wanted to be true? So many times that eventually it became true in your mind, even if it wasn't true in reality. Has there ever been something you you really wanted to change or you really needed to rationalize? You begin to tell yourself a different narrative, and eventually you bought into that story. Maybe it was a hard breakup, and it was your fault. But, But it's way easier to blame the other person. So over time, you just tell yourself that story over and over again. Or maybe you left a career you loved under the not the best circumstances. And you wanted it to be different, so you created a narrative to make you feel better about that situation. Or, or maybe you just came up with a story because you wanted it to be true. I think we've all been there. I was reading this week about a man who lived in Nebraska in 1917, and his name was Harold Cook. And he found a fossilized tooth in his property in Nebraska. He was a, 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 an archaeologist, a geologist, and he found this tooth, and he held on to it for a number of years, and he wasn't sure what it was. So he sent it to a friend who is the, the president of the American Museum of Natural History. And this Dr. Osborne was his name. And he, he saw this tooth, and he said, I know what this is. This tooth is actually the missing link. You guys may have been familiar with this story. They created the Nebraska man. This was the missing link. This was the, 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 the bridge between apes and, and mankind. And so they got so excited about this. They did drawings. Here's the picture of this um, humanoid, this ape man. I can't pronounce the name that they actually gave it. A Hesperothicus Haroldokoli. That's wrong. I'm going to guarantee you that's wrong. Go look it up later. But they created his, what kind of food he ate and what kind of dwellings they lived in and all these things. And they got really excited about it. They published it in all kinds of, all kinds of papers and, and peer-reviewed journals. And then they decided they were going to go dig up the area because they wanted to find out how these, these eight men lived. And so they went out, they dug up the area, and what they found was a bunch of pig bones. Turns out this tooth was not the eight man or the missing link. It was the tooth of a pig. They wanted it to be true so bad, so bad that they found the missing link, that they went to extra levels to tell the story over and over again, and it turned out to be not true at all. And in all seriousness, it's funny to joke about this, but in all seriousness, we've all done it, though. We all want something to be true, so we create a narrative around it, and we begin to tell ourselves that story. And when we dive into the book of Matthew today, we're going to see that very thing happen. We're going to see that for... 1,500 years, God had been writing through authors like Moses and through the prophets and saying that I'm going to do something amazing to fix what is broken, and I'm going to send one who's going to come and, and glue back together what was fractured. And, and people began to listen to those, and they began to write their own narrative over that. They began to tell their own story, and they began to create something that they wanted it to be. Somewhere along the way, they missed the the story and told a new one, and they began to believe the wrong story. And I I wonder about us, as we dive into the life of Jesus, I I want us to take a deep, hard look at our own hearts. I want us to ask the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? And what story are you believing about Jesus? Because there's a lot of different stories about Jesus out there. There's a lot of different beliefs about who Jesus is. Is he just a great teacher? Or was he a revolutionary? Is he a genie in a bottle? Is he 
just quick to swoop down when we need him? Or is he actually the person that for 1,500 years God had been telling us would come, which is the Savior of the world and the King? So this morning, I really want us to ask these questions. And so we're going to dive into this new series called A New Hope and look at the birth of Jesus. And we have to decide which story are we going to believe. So I want to look at two stories around the birth of Jesus. And I want to lean into this. And I want us to check our own hearts too. So if you have your Bibles, let's do this. Let's look at Matthew chapter 1. These are going to be very familiar stories. These are the stories you're going to expect to see at Christmas. We're just going to talk about them in September, okay? All right, here we go. Matthew chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 18. So flip to Psalms, flip halfway over again. You're in Matthew. All right, here we go. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. This is the birth story of Jesus. Matthew writes this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Love this verse at Christmas, don't we? It's a great verse. Here we have Mary and whew, here we have Mary and, and, and Joseph, and they get this message from the angels. Mary's probably 15 at the time. She's getting, she's engaged this really nice guy named, named Joseph. But then Mary comes home one day and says, Hey, Joseph, just so you know, I'm pregnant. Joseph's like, what? Yeah, and it's, I, I've been, promise I've been faithful, but it's the Holy Spirit. Sure, Joseph's like, yeah, I heard that one before, right? Like, yeah, for sure, sure it is. You know, and Joseph's like, well, how do I, what do I do? You know, I'm a, I, I want to keep a good name. I don't want to tarnish her name. So I'm just going to divorce her quietly after we get married and everything's going to be okay. And then that night, the angel speaks to him. I told you guys a couple weeks ago when we were talking through the life of Solomon, when we see the angels come to people in a dream, we need to pay attention. So you too. If an angel comes to you in a dream, pay attention. It's like your mother when she yelled your full name. You guys remember that? Andrew Ross Tarwater, get in here right now. Like, you, you weren't like, okay, mom, give me five minutes so I can finish this game, right? You're like, I'm going, right? Or it's like me at a barbecue competition. Like, I'm just, I'm on it, right? You need to pay attention when an angel speaks. And here we see Gabriel speaking to Joseph, and Joseph listens. And he tells him this crazy thing, like Mary's not making this story up. Really, she is, she, she is pregnant by the Holy Spirit. She hasn't been unfaithful. And this baby you're going to have, he's actually going to be the Messiah, the one that we've been writing about for 1,500 years. And he's going to be the Savior, and his name is Jesus. And we need to, to, to notice, notice, like, in the rest of the story, Joseph, he, he believes it, right? He's not like, oh, okay, you know, that was some bad Chinese food I had last night for dinner, you know, I just don't know what kind of dream that was. No, like, he obeys and listens, and he marries Mary, and he raises Jesus. So what is God telling us through this? Why does God tell us this part? It's cool. It's amazing. It's a miracle. But God's got a reason that he tells us this first. 
And, and I think it's this, that God is revealing to us something about Jesus that we cannot miss. Because if we're buying into the wrong story, we're going to miss it. And culture has bought into the wrong story, and they've missed it. And it's this, that Jesus is divine. That Jesus has a divine nature. That there is something supernatural about Jesus. It's really interesting. If, if you go and you just take in all that's said about who Jesus is, and why he came, and what he did, there's very little debate anymore that Jesus lived. I mean, secular scholars, liberal scholars... Atheists, they will admit a man named Jesus of Nazareth lived. There's very little debate that Jesus died on the cross. I mean, there's extra biblical writings that Christ, that Jesus, a man named Jesus of Nazareth, died on the cross. There's, there's no debate about this anymore. But yet you start talking about the virgin birth. You start talking about supernatural things, and all of a sudden it's hard to get our heads wrapped around, right? It seems as this like silly fictional story, like, like Noah and a flood. Like, how are you going to get all those animals on that boat? Or, or, or Jonah. How's Jonah really going to survive in the belly of, of a whale? If you guys go back to the sermons we did on those, but we talked through those. And, and, and so I, I think it, it's, it's really easy for Christians to look at culture and to look through the lens of what we see in everyday life and to read a virgin birth story and go, what is this really all about? Is this just a cute story? Is this just some allegory? Is this just something that we're just supposed to take at face value, or is there something more to this? And if there is, is it important if we believe it or not? I was talking to Hallie about this, my nine-year-old. Thank God Hallie's put her faith in Jesus. She said yes to Jesus. Hallie's been baptized. Hallie believes that Jesus rose from the grave, walked out of the tomb, and I love being able to see my, my little ones have a faith of their own. But we were talking about the virgin birth, and Hallie is like, Dad, how did that work? I was like, I don't know how that works. I mean, we, there's no bi biology with this that we understand, right? Like, how, how does this all come together? And I realized, like, it's hard to get your mind around this. She's like, so Joseph was his stepdad, and, like, how did that happen, and what did God do? And said, well, we don't know. It's like the flux capacitor, right? Back to the future. We know it works, but we don't know how it works, right? How did Mary get pregnant by the Holy Spirit? We, the Bible doesn't give us the manual for that, but we know that it works. And so, like, how do you wrap your minds around these things? How does the Immaculate Conception work? And, and here, here's what I want to do. Sometimes it's easy for us to read the Christmas story and go, oh, that's cute. Oh, man, I can't wait to read that with my kids before we open gifts. And then we breeze right by it. Whenever God talks about something supernatural in the Bible, we need to take note. Because when he's talking about something supernatural, he wants us to pay attention to something important. What is God teaching us? God is revealing the supernatural nature of Jesus. See, see don't miss the fact that culture is fine with Jesus being a revolutionary. Culture is fine with Jesus being a great moral teacher, which C.S. Lewis can't actually be, right? Either a liar, a lunatic, or the, or the Lord, right? Culture is fine with Jesus even being a, some kind of a prophet who's speaking for, for a God. But this great, there's this great running theme in, in, the, in the Bible that Jesus isn't just a revolutionary or a teacher or just a man, that Jesus was the God-man. And I want you guys to pay attention to that because you can't miss that. That is so key. If Jesus was born with a regular mom and a regular dad, he would have been a regular dude. And a regular dude born in a sinful world is born with a sin nature just like me and you. The Savior of the world, the Messiah, the one that needed to come, the true king, had to be divine. He had to be supernatural. He couldn't be like us. 
And, and so what we see is that there's this, this theme throughout the Old Testament pointing forward to the, this king that would come, but we see it backed up through all the writings of the New Testament authors like John. And he says this in John chapter 1, 1 through 3. He says this, that in the beginning was the word. Who's the word? It's Jesus. And the word was with God. He existed preexistently in heaven. And the word was God. Jesus isn't just the son of God. He is the son of God, but he's God. He's part of the Trinity. He's the second person of the Trinity. And notice this. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. That means that all, if you guys think back to our beginning series in Genesis, all of the, the, the things that were made in creation, who made them? Jesus did. That God used Jesus to be the word, to speak light into existence and the world into existence and time and stars and all of these beautiful things. So this son of God that is born by a virgin named Mary, he preexisted in heaven. Notice what Paul says. Paul backs this up in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. All things were created through him and for him. The Bible is teaching there's something unique about this man. That Jesus existed eternally with God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit in heaven. And this is the divine sonship of Jesus. And the only way that the divine son of God is going to be born as a human on earth is supernaturally through a virgin. And so it, it makes sense as you begin to see what God's saying. Jesus is saying this, if you're taking notes at home. Jesus, or God is saying this, Jesus' divinity, divinity shows that he is the only one with the ability to fix what was broken. Like, it, it couldn't be a regular person. It couldn't be you or me. It had to be God. It had to be someone who was divine. This is really important because the virgin birth reveals to us that salvation comes from God and not from us. And this is really good news. Because the, the reality is this, guys, that since the beginning, that we have been trying to work our way to God or earn God's favor. Mankind has built towers, and mankind has built shrines, and mankind has tried to figure out sacrifices, and mankind has tried to do everything they can to climb the ladder to God. God, look at me. I'm good enough. I'm holy enough. I follow the rules enough. And God has been saying the whole time, no, it's not that. It's not about religion. It's about relationship. And so Jesus came, and he stepped in. He said, you can't work your way to me. I'm coming down to you. So here's a question that I want you to ask yourself. And I want you to be serious, okay? I don't want to just give, don't give me the Sunday school answer. The question we need to ask is this. Where do we land on the virgin birth? Like you, like seriously, I want you to ask yourself this question. When you go home and lay your head on your pillow tonight, or your little therapeutic pillow, you know, that holds your neck up and you can put your little arm through it, right, so you can get a good night's sleep. I want you to, I just bought one, by the way. I want you guys to seriously consider what do you believe about the virgin birth because it's important. And I'll tell you why in a second. But what, what, what do you believe about this? See, the problem a lot of us have is this. We look at life through the lens of what's normal for us. So when my girls walk inside and say, Dad, I just saw somebody flying through the air. What do I think it is? It's not Superman. It's a dude on a hang glider, right? Or maybe a skydiver. Or maybe the teenager next door is jumping in his pool off the roof again, right? Like that's somebody flying. But when the Bible talks about supernatural things and we look through the view of our own normal lens, we're going to miss it. But what about when we look through the lens of what's normal for God? Is the virgin birth outside of what we can think about then? 
Well, let me ask you this. And, and audience participation on this one, please. This room over here is way fuller than this side, so I want you guys to be loud, okay? You guys got it? Does God, if, if, if God, let's play, the, let's play the, the argument here. If God is the creator of the universe, does he have the ability to create things? Simple question. Yes or no? See, they're, they're winning. They're winning already. Already. Okay, so if God is the creator, does he have the ability to create things? Yes. Does a creator have the ability to give life to things like plants, animals, and people? Yes. Man, you guys are good. Okay, yes. If God, the creator, can give life, can he bring something back to life? If Jesus in the tomb, his heart stopped and his lungs stopped, but a creator God can bring life, can he bring life back? Okay, so if God can bring something back from life, can God give life to a 15-year-old? Can God impregnate a 15-year-old girl who's never known a man before? Can God, in, in the Holy Spirit, create a baby? Yes. And so I, I think what, what, what we're seeing here is this, that if God can bring life to a person like Adam and God can bring Jesus back to life, then God can cause someone to be pregnant without the normal biology. And don't miss this. God doesn't tell us this because it's a cool story or it's a cute story or it's a fun story. He tells us this because he wants us to recognize the validity of the virgin birth. Because when we do, it helps us firmly see the divinity of Jesus. And this is the essential part of following Jesus. If Jesus is just a regular man, then he's not divine. But if he's born supernaturally, by the, by, because he, the, the Holy Spirit impregnated Mary, then he's a supernatural divine son of God. This week when I was flying back, I was on a plane, I was listening to a podcast, and they were interviewing a guy named Ross Ferguson. And, and Ross is a, a pastor from Scotland, great accent. I love the Scottish accent. I wish I could do it. He, he was talking about being a pastor in the U.K., and he was talking about his lifetime. He said, 30 years ago, you would talk to people at school about going to church. He's like, now it, it, it's almost non-existent. You get all these churches and there's nobody in them. Barna did a study on evangelical Christianity in Scotland. And they found that only 3% of people, 3 out of 100, go to a Bible-believing church. Like, so, so faith is just declining beyond belief in Scotland right now. And so the, the interview was to ask why. We see a lot of that in the U.S. too. Why? Like, how come in 30 years you've seen such a decline in people who believe the Bible is true and believe in Jesus as the Son of God who came to save the world? And he said this. He said, well, what happened was that, listen up, the churches, they wanted to fit in with culture, and so they began to preach liberal theology, meaning they began to say, well, instead of the Bible being the inerrant, infallible, no errors, truth-speaking word of God, it became a good book of guidelines. And to fit in with culture, they, they didn't want the Bible to have to be true because it would push people away. So instead, they said, well, you kind of take whatever you want out of it. They, they said instead of Jesus being the, the son of God who was born of a virgin and died on the cross and rose from the grave and now is in heaven who's coming back one day, you kind of take and choose what you want about Jesus. You know, he's a moral teacher. He's a revolutionary. He was a prophet. And what's happened is because they've stepped away from truth, everybody left the church. Because they no longer stood on truth, people said, well, why, why do I, what does this mean for me? This doesn't have any value in my life. And they left. That's why doctrine and 
understanding the, the truths about Jesus and the truth of Scripture is so important. We can never step away from it. Because the moment we do, we begin to believe a different story. We begin to believe the story that we want to believe, that sin is okay, and that, that God doesn't care what we do, and that God doesn't want a relationship with us or a part in our lives. We see it in Scotland. We're starting to see it here in the U.S. today. So I want you to see this, guys. For we don't believe that Jesus was some hip dude from Nazareth, right? We don't believe that he is some guy with good advice like Jordan Peterson. Like we don't believe that Jesus is just some guy who gave us some good recommendations on how to live our life. No, we believe Jesus is the divine son of God who was born of a virgin, who lived a sinless life, who went to the cross because he loves us. Even when we rejected him, he loves us, and he died for us. And then he rose from the grave, and his sin forget, covers everything. And we can be forgiven and walk in the path of life because of him. That's who we believe Jesus is. And that's why when it comes to talking about the virgin birth, we need to be solid on it. We need to know what we believe. Augustine says this. You guys have heard me say this before. That in, in essentials, unity. We need to be unified on the essentials. and non-essentials, liberty. and all things, charity. So we're not going to fight over it, but we need to agree on the, uni- on the things of unity. So here's the question. Is the virgin birth essential? 100%. 100% it is. Notice this quote by Charles Stanley. I love this. He says this, The virgin birth, like Jesus' resurrection from the dead, ranks as one of the Bible's more amazing miracles. Many people reject the idea outright, but others shrug it off as a non-essential to their understanding of the Savior. But a person can't believe in the word of God while rejecting its claim that the Lord was born to a virgin. Simply stated, notice what he says, simply stated, rejecting the virgin birth is equivalent to calling God a liar. So what do you believe about the virgin birth? What do you believe about what Gabriel told Joseph? What do you believe about Jesus? Because it's that important. Do you believe the story that God is telling or the story that we're trying to rewrite that culture wants to tell us? Because if you don't hold on to the essentials, you're going to start dismissing everything else, just like they did in Scotland and just like a lot of churches are doing in the U.S., Forefront, we got to hold tight. So Matthew is telling us that Jesus is divine. Jesus is supernatural. And that sets up what he tells us next. Look here at verse 22. I want you to notice. So the news of the, bir- the virgin birth, God said, was going to happen long before. So, so Matthew was going to say, look, this isn't new news. This was actually prophesied long, long before. Look at verse 22. Matthew's Matthew's speaking here uh, of what Gabriel is telling Joseph, and he says this, And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And we see in verse 24, when Joseph woke up from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to his son, and he called his name. What church? Jesus. Hope has a name, and his name is Jesus. Now, now I, I love this because what Matthew's doing is he's, and we can't spend much time here, I gotta hustle. But what Matthew's doing is he's saying, hey, Isaiah prophesied about Jesus a long time before, 700 years before, actually. But if, if you're familiar with, like, how do we read the promises in the Bible? They can be kind of confusing because it sounds like when you go back and read Isaiah that Isaiah's talking specifically to something then. So how could Isaiah be talking about something 700 years before? 
So I just want to read you real quick. Notice what's going on. So 700 years earlier, Isaiah is a prophet to a wicked king named Ahaz. Ahaz doesn't believe in God, has turned to idols. And what Ahaz does is Ahaz makes an alignment with Tiglath Pleaser, the king of Assyria, to help fight his enemies. And God comes, sends Isaiah to Ahaz and goes, Ahaz, why aren't you worshiping and asking me for help? Why are you asking the king of Assyria for help? He said, ask me for a sign, and I'm going to prove to you that I'm going to deliver and protect you from your enemies. And Ahaz says, I'm not going to ask God for a sign. So God says, I'm going to give you one anyways. And so Isaiah says this. Notice this. Therefore, the Lord himself, Isaiah 7, 14, will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows... uh, when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose good, for before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose good, the land whose kings you dread will be deserted. He said, God says, this baby's going to come, and by the time the baby's old enough to understand good and bad, your enemies are already going to be defeated. Okay. Now, if you remember back to our exile sermon a few weeks ago, we talked about how Assyria conquered Israel, the northern kingdom, and took them all away, right? So this is right before all this happens. And so notice this. Isaiah... God is using Isaiah's prophecy from 700 years before to point to Jesus. Now, you might read that and go, hold on a second. Pretty sure Isaiah's talking about something then, right? Like, isn't he talking to Ahaz? Like, how is he talking about Jesus? And so I want to teach you something really quick about prophecy. And some of you guys' eyes are going to roll back in your head here in a second. We start talking about prophecy. But when we talk about prophecy, there's usually a term that we refer to as double fulfillment. Somebody say double fulfillment. Or, near and, or, or partial and ultimate fulfillment. Somebody say partial and ultimate. My favorite is near and far. Somebody say near and far. Okay, so typically when we see promises in the Bible, when God's speaking of the Messiah one day to come, there's usually something going on in the situation right in front of them that God is going to address. But then there is the ultimate fulfillment in Jesus the Messiah, right? And so in this case, God says, okay, Isaiah, tell the king Ahaz that we're going to do something now so he sees that I'm in control. And the, prof- the promise is that a virgin's going to have a son. Okay? Well, that's weird. Well, what a lot of scholars think happened is Isaiah married a virgin. They had a son. And by the time that boy was, you know, old enough to know good from evil, the war is over. Right? So that's the near or partial fulfillment. But in all of these prophecies, there's the ultimate fulfillment. There's the ultimate picture of the one that would come. And so Isaiah had no idea. Isaiah just thinks he's going to marry a virgin and have a baby. Isaiah had no idea God was saying that one day a virgin would actually have a son before she ever knew a man. And we see that's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus by the Holy Spirit and Mary. See, God uses Matthew to show us that the far fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment, was that Jesus would be born and that is the ultimate sign that God was with us, Emmanuel. So, so God wants us to see this, guys, that, that with the story of Jesus' birth, Jesus is the one that he's been telling us is going to come from the very beginning. From, Jesus 3, from Genesis 3.15, that God's going to send one who is going to fix what was broken. That promise that started 1,500 years before, we now see that Jesus is here. And notice that God isn't some mythical God who's just going to swoop in and fix what is broken. No, God himself is coming to live with us. So here's the second thing I want you to see before we close here is this, that the presence of Jesus reveals God's heart for his people. That God said, I'm going to send my son, and he's going to come and live with you. He's going to come and be in in your midst, and, and don't let this pass you by. God sent Jesus to come and live 
like you, to face the temptations that you face, to face hunger and tiredness because he stepped into the body of a human. And so the same way that you feel about being hungry or being scared, about being tempted by all these different things, the same way you feel about sitting in traffic, right? I mean, it was different, right? I'm sure donkeys didn't move very fast and oxen weren't as quick as Tesla's, but he probably still sat in some traffic. Jesus knows what it feels like when your team is the, is the, over, is the, the, the top pick for the Super Bowl this year, and you have a great first game, and you really win, and you look good, and then at the end of the season, it all just falls apart again, over and over again, like it's going to happen to the Buffalo Bills here in a few weeks. Jesus knows the temptations that we face and all the hard things that we go through. Sorry, Pete, we're talking about four months. The reality is, guys, everything you've experienced Jesus experienced it too, and the reason he was because he stepped in and God's presence was here with us. Jesus came, here, if you're taking notes again, Jesus came and lived the life we live to meet the standard that God has for us. We can never meet the standard that God has. Jesus came and met that standard for us. And so when he gave his life on the cross, we no longer have to meet that standard, and that is great news. That's why we call the gospel good news, guys. Because the divine son of God came and took residence among us. So as Matthew's quoting Isaiah here, he's reminding that you can keep and trust God's promises. So we see here in, in the account of Jesus' birth that Jesus is divine, that God's presence comes and live with us. But I want to close with this. Look at this in Matthew chapter 2. Really quick. Matthew chapter 2. We, we see the story of the wise men. It says this. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men... From the east came from Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him and assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people. He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people of Israel. So we, another Christmas story that we love. And the, these magis, they come to, to King Herod, and Herod calls the scribes and the chief priests, and he says, where is this Messiah going to be born? And I want you to notice something. They know. They're like, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. They know the prophecy in Micah 5 too. Notice what happens. Notice what happens next. They send the wise men on, and they say, well, tell us when you find him. Okay, hold on a second. Let me ask you this. Like, notice the spiritual state of these scribes and priests. If you had been waiting your entire life for the Messiah to come, wouldn't you run to Bethlehem? Wouldn't you run the 10 miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem to go see him yourself? What did they do? They're like, well, send the Magi. Send the wise men. If they find him, come back and tell us. Here's the reality, guys. You can know your Bible backwards and forth. You can understand all that you can about who Jesus was according to the Bible. But if your heart is cold towards Jesus, then it doesn't matter. If your heart is, if, if, if your heart is cold and indifferent to Jesus, you're always going to, to miss what he is doing in, this, in your life and in this world. Let me ask you guys, where's your heart at? When you hear the name Jesus, where, where's your heart at? What stirs up in you? So notice in verse 10, Harold Herod sends the wise men to Bethlehem. They find Jesus. Jesus is probably two years old. When they see the star, they rejoice exceedingly. They give him these gifts. They give him 
gold, which emphasizes Jesus' royalty. They give him frankincense, which emphasizes Jesus' deity. Frankincense was used to worship as an incense to worship God. And they give him myrrh, which, is a per, which was a perfume to anoint men and women. So it shows Jesus' humanity in this. So why does God tell us all this? Like, why does God tell us this? I think it's this. Jesus' birth reveals that God is bringing down a new type of kingdom. I mean, notice Jesus comes from humble beginnings. He's not born in the palace. He's born in a spare bedroom. Yet he's born to be king. And, and this is the king to bring the new kingdom. This is the king that we've been waiting for since Genesis chapter 3. This is the king that God was going to point to in Deuteronomy 17. This is the king that's better than Saul. And because we needed a king better than Saul. This is the king that's better than David and better than Solomon and better than Rehoboam. This is the king who is going to bring a new kingdom down. But it was a kingdom not of this world. M many of you this week saw that Queen Elizabeth passed away. And there's been a lot said about Queen Elizabeth and the, the life that she lived and all that she meant to the, the world. And it's interesting. I got a picture to show you of Queen Elizabeth here. Some of you guys may not have known this, but Queen Elizabeth was never meant to be queen. Like it was her uncle that was supposed to be king, but he abdicated the throne and she ended up ruling for, became the longest serving monarch in, in UK, UK history. I mean, notice she was not born to be queen. She didn't grow up thinking that she was going to be queen, yet when she took the throne, she's been recognized as queen to the world, really. Really the most famous queen. Think of another queen. Who do you think of? Elizabeth, right? Think about this, that the very beginning of time, God set forth a plan to send Jesus through Mary, Mary and Joseph, to be raised by Mary and Joseph, to be king of the world, to be the, the king but a different kind of king, a new kind of kingdom. And everybody was expecting this king to come and to be a mighty ruler and to push back Rome or to be the king and make Jerusalem and Israel great again, just like it was when Solomon was there. And everybody missed it. Just notice how bad Herod missed it. Verse 16, Herod sent and killed every kid two and under because he was threatened because he thought this new king was going to be a military leader and it was going to take him off the throne. Here's the question I want to ask. I'm going to invite the worship team back on stage. Here's the question I want to ask. Over and over again, everybody has missed Jesus because they either bought into the wrong story or they've been telling themselves the wrong story about who Jesus was and why Jesus came. So let me ask you, what story about Jesus do you believe? What story are you telling yourself about Jesus? Are, are you buying the story that, that culture has been telling us, that Jesus was a great man or he was a prophet? Are you buying the story that, that others want to say that Jesus was not the son of God? How could he be? Or are you telling yourself your own story? Are you trying to refresh Jesus to fit with what you want? About 10 years ago, there was a painting hanging in a cathedral in Spain, and it was called Behold the Man. It was a, a fresco of Jesus. It was a painting, and it began to deteriorate, as you could see, because of the moisture. And so a really sweet lady, she was about 80 years old, decided that she was going to refresh the picture. And so she took some paint and tried to touch up the picture, and this is what we got. Are you guys trying to refresh the picture of Jesus to fit what culture wants you to believe? 
Are you trying to change who Jesus was because you're afraid that the Jesus of the Bible is going to make it uncomfortable to live your life in 2022? How are we buying into the wrong story of who Jesus is? Because we've got the right story right in front of us. And that story is that Jesus is the son of God who came for us because he loved us. And that it's through Jesus that if we want to live a life of meaning and fulfillment, of joy and peace, the only way to ever get there is to say yes to Jesus and to trust that Jesus is who God says he is. And it's through how Jesus calls us to live that we can finally become the people we are created to be. So, so here's something I just want to ask you guys this week. When you go throughout your day and you go throughout your week and you start to consider, who is Jesus? Some of you are going to say, I just don't know. I'm just not sure yet. And, and if that's you, here's my, here's my prayer for you, is that you pick up this book and you talk to a Christian friend and you start to say, can, can we just journey to figure out who Jesus is together? I just really don't know really who he is. If some of you are here today and you're saying, I'm really struggling this under, idea of the virgin birth, I'm really struggling with this idea of Jesus being God, here's my encouragement to you. Humbly go to God and say, God, give me faith. Help me believe. See, the good news is, guys, we're saved by grace through faith. It's not the quality of our faith that saves us. It's the grace of God. And God's grace is what carries us, is what saves us. And so when we struggle with things like this, when we have doubt and struggles, God wants us just to come to him and be honest. God, I'm really struggling with this idea right now. Give me faith. Help me believe. Show me truth. God will, faith, will be faithful to do it every single time. I think for all of us, my prayer is this, that we can recognize that the true king is here, and all he's asking us to do is to believe and to follow. And when we do, he will lead us to a place of life, of new life, and of peace and joy. And the reason is, forefront, because hope has a name, and his name is Jesus. Would you pray with me?